This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Thank you for joining me again. I hope you're all staying well and healthy, having a wonderful week. And, uh, you know, we're coming off uh, a major holiday in the Islamic tradition, Eid al-Adha, the holiday of the sacrifice. Every year I take a little time to wish my fellow Muslim brothers and sisters a uh, Eid Mubarak, a blessed Eid, and wish the pilgrims who were able to make the Hajj, the pilgrimage, the 10-day journey through Mecca and Medina, ending to include ritualistic paths, recitation of scripture, and an attempt to remember the struggles, the example of the Prophet Muhammad. And uh, to them this year, I again wish them a, a blessed Eid. Our Eid, our holiday this year was on July 31st, which is the 10th day of the 12th month of the Islamic lunar calendar, Dhul-Hijjah is the name of the 12th month, but that's the day of the lunar calendar in which Muslims believe that the pilgrimage should happen. It's the great holiday, and, the, and Muslims sacrifice typically not only part of the prayers and worship and the recognition of the holiday, but they sacrifice a a lamb to recognize on this holiday the the near sacrifice of Abraham by Abraham of his son. We won't get into the long debate about which son. We won't get into, you know, Muslims obviously believe Ishmael. Um, but at the end of the day, this is a holiday that it's interesting. You know, Muslims, while we spend a lot longer time reflecting on Atonement and and prayer and worship in the month, 30 days of Ramadan and the daily fast. But that last day, the first day of the next month, Eid al-Futr, the holiday of the feast, is our second holiday. This holiday now is our greatest holiday. So it would be the equivalent to any religion's biggest holiday, whatever yours may be. And yet this year, there were hardly any pilgrims. If you saw a picture of Mecca, where you typically have 2 million people descend on Saudi Arabia to do the uh, pilgrimage. This year, it was exceedingly sparse, if any. I believe they didn't let anyone in from outside Saudi Arabia, and I'm not sure how that can even be a pilgrimage. You would imagine most people of the 25 million or so Saudis have already done their pilgrimage by living there. But anyways, the photos were just breathtaking uh, in that 
you basically saw maybe a thousand, maybe four or five hundred people circling around there, doing the tawaf, as it's called in Arabic. Typically, they're shoulder to shoulder, men and women walking next to each other because you want to hold on to the hand of your loved ones. No longer even invoking the need to separate men and women by the Salafis of the Saudis, the Wahhabi tradition, but rather giving a pass for that because of the dense population, because they're moving in circles. And yet this year there was barely a few hundred on most of the pictures. Certain distance apart, moving in almost perfect circles. Versus the 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 bumping and the pushing and the and the mass of humanity that goes in and out of there during the ten days and especially on the last day or two of the Hajj. I hope and pray I'll be able to do it sometime. But it shows, sort of shows you that these are very odd times. That picture of the Hajj this week. Look for it. Google it. Compare it to any other picture of the Hajj of the Kaaba the Grand Mosque in Saudi Arabia. And you'll see a difference. But we cannot be defined by the virus. We cannot allow the virus to define us. It might define the time, but it doesn't define us. Do we need, yes, we need some types of worship, obviously, with God, but group worship is, yes, it's beneficial to allow the message, the beauty, the, the blessings, the the teachings of God, I believe, to push people to be good over evil, to push away evil, to reform, to become better people. I think that's obviously one of the reasons you gather in groups. But it's not absolutely necessary in that personal relationship with God. If you read some of the scholars of Islam that talk about what makes us human, and what makes us have a relationship with God is not other people. Other people provide us with the protection to be free, to make our choices, to be able to choose to reject or accept God, to be free and, and teach and, and elocute, to have speech that allows us to argue and value each other's opinion and learn and ask questions. These are things, I think, that make us human. The ability to be free allows us to be human, to create, to create poetry, art, music, things that are uniquely human versus other species, is the ability to create. So yes, we need other human beings to have the space, people that share our values. If we have other human beings around us like the Chinese government, or the Syrian government, the Assads, or the Iranian Khomeinists, or the Wahhabis of Saudi Arabia or any tyranny around the world, you will not be able to be essentially free to create what you want, to make mistakes, to to espouse things that might offend other Muslims, other Jews, other Christians, atheists, whatever it might be. And I believe that's lesser than humanity when you when you prevent them from being themselves and asking questions. But those tyrannies prevent you from being human. Other humans do that. But you don't need other humans to worship God. And I think that's one of the things we learned in this pandemic is that, yes, as isolated as it might be, as much as it might have augmented psychopathology, as much as we're seeing pandemics 
after this pandemic that are going to be exponential over the next years, be it economic, be it medical, be it familial, social, cultural, whatever those pandemics might be, we realize as people like Izbegovic talked about when he was in prison for 15 years under Tito, he talked about he had the closest relationship with God that he ever had because that's all he had when he was in isolation and solitary confinement. So ultimately, as the scriptures tell us, regardless of what faith you are, we come from God and we return to God and we have God no matter where we are when we close our eyes. He's with us. And I think if you look at the holiday of the sacrifice this year for Muslims, we are tested. Isolation cannot take too long, but we are tested. Tested how? Which is, how do we face a virus that knows no faith, no religion, no time, no nation? Do we face it with strength or do we face it with weakness? And now to move on from the subject of our of our holiday of Al-Adha. A quick comment, as I have often done, simply because I'm not only obviously in a Muslim and American patriot, but a doctor. We're seeing more COVID cases, and thankfully the cases are coming down. The deaths haven't followed yet to decrease, but they will. They always do. But the cases have now gone down significantly from the peak two weeks ago. And as I said, the rooster wants to take credit for the morning. Those who changed a few little rules here and there to make it seem like they were doing things. I'm sorry, we will not. Scientists do not sort of give up an agreement. We might say, well, yeah, that looks maybe. But I don't think so. Whether it's the data coming out of Sweden, whether it's the data comparing very different states across the country, South Dakota or elsewhere, some places where schools stayed open, their numbers don't particularly connote a huge difference between lockdowns and economic strangulation versus some limited prevention of close contact, distancing, and invocation of rules with masks and hand-washing, etc. So those types of things, there's a lot of gray area that nobody seems to want to acknowledge because it's all political. It's all political. We cannot allow the virus, the pandemic, whatever it might be, to say that we will change, to allow us to change who we are. And I think faced with any confrontation, faced with any stressor on our system, whatever it might be, we as Americans, free people, don't roll over and die. We face it. We become smarter. We become more rational. We develop vaccines. We develop treatments. We... Make allowance for the critically ill. We protect the vulnerable. And that allowance for the critically ill might mean, you know, 
pop-up hospitals uh, and other facilities and distribution of resources in a smarter way, et cetera, whatever that might be. But to lock down the entire system because one idea, which is supposedly by locking people down at home, it decreases the spread of the virus, possibly by time, but not by volume. Slows it down, but not by volume. So is that the smartest thing, to take away the jugular flow of energy and sustenance into every home because you want to stop that virus? And I've talked about that here before, but all I can say is that we're still, now August 2020, we're still seeing people calling for the shutting down of America, the shutting down of various states, and none of that has been proven to be significantly effective. We'll continue to check that. Primary thing I wanted to talk to you today about is so much media attention now, which is just, I think, fantastic, about the genocide, genocide that's happening in China against the Uyghur Muslims. A few months ago when we talked about it, a year ago when I talked about it, went to the White House, some of us reform-minded Muslims met with the lead Council at the National Security Council on China and on the Uyghur on the Uyghur affairs, and there's always been a significant receptiveness in every administration, especially this one, about what the Chinese are doing. It's not a question that they don't care; it's a question that there was just not that much to do. And by the way, I I never agreed with the second part. Not that much to do. All of a sudden, now we're seeing a lot being done to China. We see an app, TikTok, that was clearly deployed as a data mining operation in order to grab stranglehold on a large amount of the population, millennials on up. And in order to shift not only social cultural issues, economic issues, but data. And now finally, the Trump administration, in par with their appropriate, I think very appropriate approach to China, because of the economic disasters that that country has continued to try to impose on our country with technological thievery, national security compromise, as their Navy ships. If you look at their Navy ships, and I say this, I bring it up always with China because as a naval officer, I I cannot even stand looking at their ships. Their ships are simply prototypes of, are, are, are stolen. Almost to every T from ours. I talk to microchip producers behind the scenes that tell me that when they get chips from China, even the engraving to the micro unit, to the micron, is reproduced to the signature on the chips from their companies in retrofitting. So these people are all about using other people's work, stealing other people's work, thieving them, and enslaving them as a result. Because anything goes, there is no moral compass. It is about the supremacy of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Nothing depicts China's motives. 
China's method of operation, their MO, nothing does so more clearly than the way they're mounting a genocide and war crimes and hate crimes, I'm sorry, against humanity and the Uyghur Muslim population. Steve Postal has a great article that was out on the American Spectator last week that said the recent developments adding to an already glaring case that China is persecuting Uyghur Muslims. The New York Times reported that China had been using malware and cell phones to spy and track on the movement of Uyghurs since as early as 2013. This is the first step in establishing an intricate surveillance state targeting the Uyghurs that includes collecting blood samples, voice prints, facial scans, and other personal data. Chinese companies are assisting the government in this surveillance, including Huawei, ByteDance, the operator of Dwin, which is TikTok in China. The U.S. Department of Commerce placed restrictions on nine other companies in May this year, adding to a list of 28 more from October 2019 due to their direct involvement in human rights abuses of the Uyghurs and other groups. Steve goes on to note, if that wasn't disturbing enough, earlier this month the U.S. Customs Border Protection seized the shipment of 13 tons of products made from human hair to believe to be from the heads of the Uyghurs. According to the CBP, this shipment indicates potential human rights abuses of forced child labor and imprisonment. This has many distressed echoes of the Holocaust where Nazis used their hair and skin from Jews to make textiles, lampshades, and photo albums. Two Uyghur groups, exile groups, have filed a case against China International Criminal Court. Their 80-page complaint alleges genocide and crimes against humanity and implicates over 30 Chinese officials, including Xi Jinping, General Secretary of the Communist Party of China. While China does not recognize the jurisdiction of the ICC, the plaintiffs hope to establish jurisdiction by focusing on China's role in having Uyghurs deported from Cambodia and Tajikistan back to China. Both Cambodia and Tajikistan recognize the jurisdiction of the ICC. Counsel for the plaintiffs hope to draw on previous legal precedent. The ICC ruled that it has jurisdiction when crimes start or end in a member state. In 2018, when Myanmar not an ICC member, or Burma, deportment of Muslims fled to Bangladesh, an ICC member. The second development is a report written by Adrian Zhang, Senior Fellow of Chinese Studies, of China Studies at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Finally, this report buttresses the claim that China is committing genocide in its coercive sterilization of Uyghur women. And obviously... The 48th Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide stipulates list of acts of constitute genocide, the intent to destroy in whole or whole part a national, ethnic, or racial, or religious people. And it goes on. So there is no clearer case that genocide is happening. We need to start marshalling the forces of diversity in the West to begin to declare Chinese Communist Party a genocidal party that is exposing what it is and what it stands for in the way that it treats the Uyghur Muslims. We should do so from the steps of Holocaust memorials, from the steps of our free politicians in the West and their Capitol Hills, their congressional 
buildings and elsewhere. Hats off to Steve for posting this fantastic article. There's a lot to learn. This week, even ladies and gentlemen, ESPN, which I'm sure has some financial links to China, gave it to the NBA. Gave it to the NBA, which we've been trying to call for some time. You remember the whole flap a few months ago where you had uh, various uh, NBA all-stars saying, oh, be quiet, you don't know what you're talking about, just because the Mavericks owner, or the Mavericks manager, I'm sorry, decided to make a comment that uh, the, the crimes committed by the Chinese Communist Party abhorrent and we shouldn't stand for that. And all of a sudden you had this uproar from from uh, stars making tens of millions of dollars saying he shouldn't be speaking about this kind of stuff. Well, it's time to call it a genocide what it is. As ESPN reports, they said, in search of the next Yao Ming the NBA opened a player development academy in Jingchang, which is the correct name for the area, the nation that the Chinese Communist Party occupied of the Uyghur population. Most athletes there are Uyghurs. The Chinese government ran the facilities and the coaches physically beat the players. And it turned out that the training camps that they had were actually violent abusive, torturous training camps. Embarrassments to humanity. More and more stories are being released about what was done to those children. Embarrassments to humanity. That we sat and we allowed that to happen and nobody has said anything. ESPN has finally begun to talk about it. And what happened to those kids should not happen to anyone. Let alone funded and fueled by contracts for sales of merchandise, for, for, for training the future, supposed, because they want to help young talent in China. Well, that's absurd, ladies and gentlemen. Absurd because in exchange... They are facilitating the growth of the mechanism, the finances with which the Chinese government commits acts like their genocide against the Uyghurs. But nothing's being done. ESPN ran the story. We'll see what kind of follow-up they're going to have. Meanwhile, we see as the NBA season finally gets started here in America, the hypocrisy, as my friend Seth Leibson laid out in his program here in Phoenix, the hypocrisy of the NBA working with China and now telling us in America as they wear Black Lives Matter t-shirts, etc. It's not about just racism. This is about political control. They claim under the moniker, as I talked to you at depth last week, what the what's behind much of the leadership in Black Lives Matter. But they're working with the Islamists. They're working with the Chinese, as we said. All these different red-green alliances that occur expose the hypocrisy that it's not as simple. It's a, it's a bait and switch, ladies and gentlemen. 
a bait and switch where they bait you with the anti-racism that any human being should be against and then they switch it into a totalitarian power grab of the economy advancement of socialism and a group thing against individualism where you have to kneel you can't stand for the national anthem where all of a sudden now we have a political movement that's all over our sports venues in order to divide our country. Hats off to anyone taking this on because we need to talk about is diversity. What is diversity? What is ideological diversity? Last, I want to talk to you about Supreme Court this week came up with a decision to vacate the sentencing of the remaining Sarnayev brother. Do you remember the Sarnayev brother? The militant, radical Islamist who decided to blow up the Boston Marathon? The Federal Appeals Court thought that the jurors were biased. Not about the guilty. Not about the premeditated mass murder part. No. Biased about the sentencing. Because they rationally recommended a death sentence for premeditated mass murder. What nonsense. What a colossal, what a colossal waste of government resources that now we are going to retry the sentencing part. Because the federal appeals judge felt that somehow because of social media posts or other things the jurors made that they had already decided they were prejudiced. So wait a minute. Not only was this guy a mass murder, which was premeditated as you had to plant the bomb, etc. This wasn't something second or third degree. But it was also treason. Traitor. Swore an oath to this country and attacked it on behalf of a foreign enemy who is at war with us. Al-Qaeda. This is evil. And, and, you know, not to be sarcastic, but I can see it now. Remember Ilhan Omar? In her video defending the fact that the ISIS militants were just getting too harsh a sentence when they come back. The, the ISIS brides should, should, should be looked at as victims, not as criminals. Even though many of them have been admittedly not only anti-American, but had no remorse over the crimes they had done. And the genocide they had claimed they wanted to do against Jews, against the West, against America. And yet she wanted a lighter sentence. So, oh, I can see it now. Ilhan Omar asked for a lighter sentence. Would she be a witness for the, for the retry of the sentencing? Or maybe Bernie Sanders might be a better witness. Remember when he in a debate was asked by Anderson Cooper... Well, wait a minute, you want to expand voting rights to prison. He even asked him, he said, do you think Tsarnaev, the Boston Marathon bomber, should 
vote? And he said, well, yeah, he should. <laughs> Maybe Bernie Sanders will be a witness also. Zoom into the sentencing and have him say that, oh, I think he should be allowed to vote and not don't kill him. He should be allowed to vote. Or maybe Rolling Stone should circulate him back on the front page with a with a little rollout of how normal of a soccer player or boxer he was in college and high school in that Boston suburb. The jihadi cool that they gave them what they wanted. Right? So these radicals want to be famous. They want to be looked upon as cool. And sure enough, arms like the Rolling Stone magazine reached out for that. Yeah, so I, you know, I think deeper, obviously, that I think this is going to go through the cycle. I think that uh, the retry will then convict him of a death sentence, impose the death sentence upon him by more rational Americans. And fine, is it a sign that our system has checks and balances? Okay, no problem. But is it also a sign that there's a bit of a rot, political rot, for legislation from the bench? It's hard to forget that the same DOJ has judges that even when the DOJ wanted to drop the case against General Flynn... It's now being retried. I don't know how they're going to do that without the DOJ, but with another judge retrying it. And by the way, I wasn't a fan of some of Flynn's lobbying for Erdogan and a lot of that stuff. Some of the coziness with Putin as they were launching strikes against people who simply wanted to be free in Syria being wiped out by the Russian military. But our DOJ did not go after him simply because they wanted to clean the swamp. They went after him because they hate Trump. And that's not how it works. That's not what power is supposed to be used for. It's not for political expediency and one-upsmanship if you have the opportunity. So Tsarnaev is a radical militant that the quicker he sees the death penalty, the better and the greater the day will be in the United States as we stand up for the rule of law and justice against militants. And yet we see in the West there's still this perennial discussion about let's no longer use the term Islamism. We're backing up, ladies and gentlemen, to even long before September 10th, 2001, before we even knew there was a massive threat or anyone acknowledged it. Before 1998, when Osama bin Laden openly on Al Jazeera declared war against the United States of America. We're even moving before that backwards. I'm concerned. But I bring this case to your attention because it's also a sentinel time to remember there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake, not only in elections, which have consequences, but in our judiciary, in our 
a strategy at Homeland Security and, and, and in every branch of government. Do we approach threats face on or do we curl up and roll over from the pandemics to radical Islam? Do we approach the cultural conflicts with free speech and respect and confrontation or do we do it with violence and oppression and coercion? These are questions I ask every day and as our kids hopefully can get back to school soon, I hope and pray our educational system starts moving to correct that too to where they can be free to ask questions and not be cowed into fear into a fear of being unable to ask any questions and simply by the thought police who tries to rein them in. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be with you as always. Share this on Twitter. Find me at Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, at Reform This Radio. And also support our organization at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy at AIF Democracy and at AIFdemocracy.org. Share this podcast, tell your friends about it, and we look forward to always being with you here every week at Reform This. This is your faithful American Muslim patriot, Zudi Jasser, on Reform This. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.